everybody, it is Friday. What is today? Today's June 21st, 2019, and you're listening to another episode of the Salvage Title Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brett Eslodyke, and uh, it's been a little bit. Uh, apologies across the board about that, but life goes on. I got a promotion at work. It takes up a lot of time in my life, and uh, well, you know, we're still going to find time to do this show when we can. So in this week's episode, I wanted to talk about a few pieces of news that I guess are sort of, semi-sort of, of interest uh, based on previous episodes and some things that I just think are cool. Uh, first up, just a couple of touches on uh, what's going on with Renault, Nissan, Fiat, Chrysler. Uh, everything apparently fell apart, and then it was back on, and now it's back off, and it keeps bouncing back and forth. So... That is a big mess to try to take apart. Other news, uh, I want to talk for a moment about the new Hyundai Palisade SUV. Uh, these vehicles are going to start hitting the American shores in the next couple of weeks. Uh, the press launch just happened um, not too long ago, and uh, I've definitely got some thoughts on the Palisade versus its uh, cousin, the Kia Telluride. And then uh, last up, or, I guess, news-related stuff. Uh, we'll talk a bit about the Polestar 1. Uh, the production prototypes have been available for the press to kind of get some feels on. And, woo, there's some takes to be uh, made on these stories that are already happening. Uh, on the one hand, Polestar 1, uh, what a beautiful car. On the other hand, very expensive for what it is. Um, and that's kind of, you know, up to your own subjective interpretation. And then lastly, I wanted to kind of update you guys, kind of talking about what kind of car I'm looking at to replace the old Fiesta uh, work with the promotion. Gives me a little bit of cash, but I got to pay off some other stuff first. But the uh, name of the game is going to be space and efficiency. And, uh, well, basically, I think it's come down to roughly two options at this point. So we'll kind of touch on those and think about some pros and cons. Anyway, guys, after a short little bump, we'll start talking about the first piece of news, uh, which is some eh, updates, I guess, on the Renault-FCA merger. So a little bit of an update about what's going on with Fiat Chrysler and Renault-Nissan-Mitsubishi. Uh, it had all but looked like that this deal was going to happen. And then suddenly at the stroke of midnight, uh, apparently everything just collapsed and they announced that the deal was completely off the table. Um, there had been some issues with the French government getting involved and making sure that they still had a place at the table. Um, other companies and individuals had to give up seats on the board. Uh, Nissan sounded like they were about to walk away from the deal altogether and leave the Renault-Mitsubishi alliance uh, just because they weren't necessarily being included in a way that benefited them. I think Mitsubishi's just kind of along for the ride at this point, and I think for them, their biggest concern would be that, well, one, they're saddled with Fiat Chrysler, uh, well, at least Chrysler again, uh, for the second time in 30 years, uh, but also, two, that they wouldn't be uh, the little project within the company anymore, and, you know, there's a lot of 
ways in which, you know, this could have been a great partnership. There's a lot of ways that this could have been a wonderfully executed merger. Uh, but when you're talking to about at least two, three, four, five gigantic companies coming together to do something like this, uh, it raises a lot of questions on how that would work. Uh, at least in Europe, you know, fiat had been a huge thing. 10 or 15 years ago, uh, they're not quite as big of a thing anymore, so they're desperate to have that kind of cash, especially when Ram and Jeep can only bring in so much for them uh, across the board. They're also looking for development partners to help save costs on green technologies and other things like that, and Renault and Nissan have been uh, very much ahead of the game when it comes to that kind of product development. On the flip side, uh, Renault is getting creamed by Peugeot and Citroën in their home market. Uh, Nissan is still playing catch-up to Toyota and Honda in many aspects. Uh, so, kind of in a weird way, I guess to me, I've always felt like Fiat Chrysler has been more of a B-team effort here in the U.S. Uh, Renault, Nissan, Mitsubishi, definitely B-team efforts in their respective home markets. And like all of these B-teams kind of coming together kind of ends up making a really strong B-team, maybe almost an A-team. But I just, I, it's such a mess on how that would all would have turned out that I, I, I guess I don't really know how this ever would have worked in the first place. I don't know. There's a lot of ins and outs. And it sounds like Fiat Chrysler and Renault and Nissan and all those guys are still saying that this merger could happen. It's just not going to happen right now with the terms that everybody wants. Uh, it's it's really frustrating. I guess, you know, one thing that popped into my head the other day when I was thinking about this is uh, if this did happen, what would have happened in Formula One? That would have meant that Renault and Ferrari and Alfa Romeo all would have been a part of the same team in some roundabout way, and that would have been a really weird scenario to have when it comes to your, well, I guess four powertrain choices uh, in Formula One. <coughs> Excuse me. And it, it's... I don't know, that, that's maybe getting too far off into the distance, but it's, it's still something that would have had to have been figured out to some extent. And I just don't know if there's the, uh, not necessarily monetary capital, but uh, political capital within these organizations to make that work. Uh, at the same time, it sounds like PSA, that's Peugeot and Citroën, are still interested in merging with FCA as well. There hasn't really been much talk about that recently, uh, but... Hey, you know, I think Fiat Chrysler is really looking for any opportunity to get some extra cash to help them uh, shore up some of their investments uh, before different regulations and other things kind of start getting in their way of their current profit makers, which are uh, Jeep and Ram. Uh, the other interesting thing to kind of talk about while we're on the merger subject is still Ford and Volkswagen. Uh, those two companies uh, inked a deal earlier this year to uh, co-develop pickup trucks and uh, potentially have Ford be purchasing some of the EV technology from Volkswagen. A uh, few more details kind of came about uh, with the truck thing. It sounds like what's going to happen in this deal is that whatever pickup truck they co-develop is going to be uh, sold in Europe as a Volkswagen and in America as a Ford. Um, so we're going to keep our stuff and they're going to get their stuff and that's really going to be it. Uh, whether or not that means that the Ford Ranger in the European market goes away, probably not, but that the Armac would just never come to the North American market on the whole. 
to me, it makes sense. Volkswagen's not really known as a pickup manufacturer here in the U.S. Uh, but that's a deal that I think long term could spell an interesting future for what's going on with Fiat Chrysler and, well, whomever other suitor kind of comes up to the uh, plate uh, for them in terms of some kind of merger. Uh, it's definitely going to be some kind of development partnership. I don't think it's going to be an outright purchase. And maybe that's the big thing that's missing in this Fiat Chrysler deal is that they need to be buying technology from other companies to help speed along their products and lower development costs, maybe not necessarily merging altogether. So earlier this year, Kia and Hyundai pulled the wraps off their two new full-size, mid, upper mid-size. I, I don't know how we're classifying these. And anyway, they're, they're basically SUVs at this point. They're very large crossovers. Uh, we had the Kia Telluride and we had the Hyundai Palisade. Uh, these three-row crossovers are slotting into a marketplace that Kia has not, well, at least Kia and Hyundai, have not been in, in the U.S. for the better part of a decade. Uh, it's the first time that they are offering three-row crossovers that were actually meant to be three-row crossovers from the beginning. Uh, really ever, I think. Uh, and these vehicles have really caught a lot of people off guard because they're so unbelievably well executed, seemingly out of nowhere. Uh, the Kia Telluride in particular has really set the world on fire when it comes to the automotive press and for the buying public just because there are rave reviews everywhere for this car. Kia dealerships can't keep them on the lot. Uh, they can't build them fast enough to meet the demand that people have for this thing. And, you know, I think a lot of that kind of comes down to the visual element of the Telluride. It looks absolutely fantastic. Uh, really, it's, I think it's more, for lack of a better term, I think it looks like a mini Range Rover in a roundabout way. And I think that's what makes it such an attractive vehicle it really puts forth a presence that kind of i don't know you seem to know what you're doing when you have one of those and combined with the fact that it actually is relatively capable off-road um maybe not quite as trick of a four-wheel drive system as what honda has uh with the pilot but uh it'll do a pretty damn good job and i think it could definitely go toe-to-toe -to -toe in some instances um and you know it's just it's just a bang-up job the one regret I have about the Telluride is that to get the best looking trims, the right options, all those kinds of things, you've really got to jump up the product chain uh, to get those high option, high uh, margin models. And so you're looking at 40 plus thousand dollars to get what I think should be more standard equipment. Um, but hey, you know, that's, that's just kind of the way this thing works uh, with crossovers and SUVs that are this size. Hyundai, on the other hand, had been kind of riding the brakes a little bit on the Palisade. Uh, it did debut pretty much alongside the Telluride. And the Palisade, for the most part, uh, I don't think is quite as strong in the looks department as the Telluride is. Uh, the Telluride definitely has an identity that's all its own within Kia. Uh, versus the uh, Palisade that kind of takes the design language from the Santa Fe, which I think is a very good-looking crossover, uh, arguably the best mid-size crossover in its segment. Uh, and they kind of shove the old bike tube up its butt and pump it up a little bit. And uh, it turns into a really good-looking upper mid-size crossover, but it's really dependent on the colors that it's in. Uh, I think the Palisade personally looks best in darker colors. Uh, light ones just don't give the pop to the chrome that's on the front of the vehicle. And the, for lack of a better term, eyes on the front look a little weird in some colors and in some lights that 
I don't know. I think in person it looks good. It just doesn't photograph particularly well. On the flip side, however, the interior of the Palisade, I think, is really the strong suit. They really do a great job on that. Um, it does offer a full digital gauge cluster that's not available in the... Uh, <laughs> excuse me, Kia Telluride, and uh, I think that is, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It, it's one of those kinds of trade-offs. The Palisade, to me, almost feels like a Genesis product versus the Telluride that feels a lot more like, you know, a higher-end Kia. I, I don't know if that makes sense to a lot of people. Uh, the Palisade really seems like they want it to be a lot more. I think it will be a lot more when it eventually evolves into its own Genesis model. Uh, to some extent, they're going to do another version of this vehicle for them. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think really the big headline, though, is that these vehicles are priced almost the same. The Palisade's actually technically a little bit cheaper, a couple hundred dollars cheaper. Um, and the other big thing is that the Palisade is, well, uh, built in Korea versus the Telluride, which is assembled in uh, the American South. And whether or not that's going to turn into any kind of quality, performance, discrepancy, uh, short-term or long-term, I think is going to be interesting to see uh, how it plays out. Uh, on the one hand, I, not to shorthand the American folks who are assembling this down south, uh, I don't know, I, there's not a, necessarily a track record there with that. And with the Palisade being a global vehicle effort and coming out of their uh, high-tech South Korean factories, I think there's a little more of a precedent for that to be a higher quality vehicle long term. Um, but that, I suppose, remains to be seen. One other interesting difference between the two vehicles is that uh, the Kia does come with a little more off-road ready uh, rubber on the wheels and tires uh, versus the Palisade that only comes with uh, all-season tires. So if you're looking for something that is all-weather capable, something that's going to be able to go off and do a bit of dirt and help you move some things around, the Palisade isn't it, uh, and the Telluride will get it done, uh, but you know, that can be fixed as well, you know, doing some aftermarket part swaps there. So I'm just really excited, I think, more or less, that there are these two new crossovers seemingly coming out of nowhere and really jumping into a market that uh, has really been dominated by things like the Chevy Traverse, uh, the Ford Explorer, uh, you know, the new Subaru Ascent is in that mix, same thing with the Honda Pilot. Um, I think Hyundai and Kia really have a lot to offer, and the Palisade at 32595 to start uh, really comes off like a great value, and for just over forty grand to be able to tick almost every luxury box without jumping into the luxury model uh, really opens up some interesting dialogue about what it is to have a near-luxury vehicle uh, with a sub-luxury brand on the front. And I, I just really feel like if it were my money today, it would be really hard to choose between the Telluride and the Palisade. And I think dollar for dollar right now, I kind of lean Hyundai, but there are times of the year where, man, that, that Telluride, I think, makes a lot more sense. And I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see how this thing battle shapes up between these two cars uh, as things kind of go on over the next year or two. So last up in the news segment, uh, I want to talk a bit about the Volvo. Uh, well, not entirely Volvo. It's the Polestar 1, the first of the new Polestar branded automobiles that are going to be launching worldwide later this year and on into early 2020. Uh, the Polestar 1, for those of you at home who don't remember, is a four-seat 
personal luxury coupe that's going to kind of sort of go toe-to-toe with things like uh, the Mercedes SL, uh, the BMW M8, uh, stuff like that. It's got a 600 horsepower hybrid all-wheel drive powertrain that's more or less sourced from the uh, T8 uh, XC90, but kind of really cranked up when it comes to the power aspect. Uh, That 2.0-liter turbocharged, supercharged engine made into its hybrid system produces the majority of the power for the vehicle, um, but with some larger batteries and two independent uh, rear electric motors, uh, this car is really able to rocket in terms of acceleration and performance uh, while still maintaining maintaining some level of luxury composure uh, that this thing is kind of well, meant to do. It's a Swedish car, after all. It's not meant to be uh, a jack-of-all-trades. It just happens to be good at being comfortable, being stylish, and having a good bit of power uh, while also being exceptionally safe. Uh, Now, Polestar themselves, they've been kind of monkeying around with Volvos for quite some time. Uh, They were an independent uh, sports car team, uh, modifier of Volvos for a long time, and then they got acquired by Volvo uh, a few years back to become basically their M division or AMG subsidiary of the company. And then uh, with Geely and Volvo doing all their things together, Polestar basically just got told to do their own thing. Uh, So the Polestar 1 is the first car, given the number one name. Uh, This car is going to start at $155,000, at least in terms of American currency, uh, when it goes on sale. And it sounds like a lot of the early cars have already been sold. The big question, I think, for me on this is whether or not $155,000 is justified when you are largely getting a, well... A significant number of Volvo parts underneath. Uh, like I said, it's basically an XC90 powertrain tuned up to 11 or 12 on the dial. Uh, you've got a lot of bits and bobs in the interior that come out of the S60, the S90, the XC90, and so forth. And it's not to say those Volvo bits and bobs aren't good. They are good bits and bobs. Uh, but that, you know, at that price range, you should be expecting a good bit more. Uh, Volvo seems to think that this thing's definitely going to be going up against, you know, things like the Model S to some extent from Tesla because this is kind of an electrified hybrid that can run on electric power, uh, but also because of the high power and four-wheel drive system. It kind of sort of competes with the Bentley Continental as well, and it sits in this weird middle ground where you can't really decide what it needs to be. And I think in the grand scheme of things, that's maybe where Volvo does their best amount of work. Uh, They have always been kind of in the middle of so many different segments and catering to very specific uh, brands and customers. And I think Polestar is going to be taking a page out of that book and kind of doing the same kind of thing. It really seems like Polestar wants to have a very premium product with bits and bobs that are off the shelf that they know are going to work and produce a car that's, you know, going to sell to people who are interested in what they've done in the past. I think a lot of people are still waiting to see what ends up happening with the Polestar 2. Uh, That is the smaller uh, car that's based on the same chassis as the XC40 um, and will be the electric sedan uh, that they hope to take on the Tesla Model 3 with. Uh, That car, I think, is going to be significantly more interesting than the Polestar 1. Not to say that the Polestar 1 isn't interesting, uh, but that... uh, 
it's got a little bit more tangible uh, tan tangible goodness to it. The more people are going to be able to buy it. It's likely not going to be more than $50,000 to start. And that's a good thing. And those cars are going to have to be purchased and paid for to make more things like the Polestar 1 happen. And... You know, it's just exciting that it's basically going to be something different out there. Uh, one of the reviews that I watched basically described the Polestar 1 as a Honda NSX in reverse. And that really kind of got me strangely excited. Just because, you know, the NSX is by all means a very good sports car that is incredibly capable and you know does its thing in a very different way compared to a 911 or a mercedes amg gtr or even a corvette uh but the polestar one i think is going to kind of do that same thing to a lot of other cars in its own segment that uh well it kind of remains to be seen i guess we're gonna have to see what ends up happening Comparing it against something like the BMW 8 Series, I think is going to be a really good way to kind of measure where they're at as a company. And I think with Volvo's help, with Geely's money, Polestar is going to be making a lot of really cool cars in the not-too-distant future. So last up, I wanted to self-indulge a bit, talking a bit about uh, my car shopping when it comes to replacing my 2011 Ford Fiesta. Uh, I've been doing a lot of shopping when it comes to selling my car and seeing where the market is at. And on the high end, it looks like I would just about break even with where I'm at on my loan on the car, which kind of sucks because I just spent, you know, more or less two grand replacing the wheel or excuse me the tires and getting some bits and bobs uh, fixed underneath that uh, needed some attention for quite some time uh, in that aspect of things well it kind of sucks but that's the way kind of car ownership works all things considered this has been an incredibly reliable car it gets really good gas mileage i've enjoyed driving it very much uh, but the demands for my job and my life uh, are requiring a much more quote-unquote normal car and as such i have started to look more deeply into wagons as a consideration against pickup trucks and small crossovers now sitting at the tippy top of my list right now of cars that if I can find a good one locally for a halfway decent price, I have to jump on it ASAP, is the Saab 93X Sport Combi. I had completely forgotten about this Saab even existing up until a few weeks ago, and it's really weird, and I think it's because, well, you don't see many of the 93Xs really at all. You see a lot more of the standard sport combis uh, with the X-wheel drive system. The, they're 4x4, or not 4x4, they're all-wheel drive system. Uh, and it's really sad because the 93X really was a modern, interp well, not even a modern. I guess it's like they were 10 years ahead of their time uh, compared to where things are at these days. Uh, the Saab 93X kind of got this raised ride height. I think it was like an extra inch over the standard uh, car. And then it had a little bit more of a robust like kind of cladding thing. It actually got some underbody protection because it was meant to be able to go off-road to some extent, which is really weird. Uh, but there were otherwise no compromises in the interior of the car. It was the same thing as the regular Saabs, which meant it was an Epsilon uh, chassis from GM. It's the same chassis that was underneath the uh, Chevy Malibu, the Buick Regal, the uh, Pontiac G6, so many other cars. They all used the same body. Uh, it used a little bit more of a... Uh, 
robust, I would argue, version of the GM 2.0-liter turbo engine. Um, it's the same unit that I think eventually got spun off to get used in the Cadillacs and a few other cars. Uh, but Saab had been working with this engine for quite some time, and they knew kind of the ins and outs, and they were able to tune it to their own specifications that uh, really seemed to have held up quite a bit more than some of those other cars. And then the Saabs also used a different transmission than a lot of the other cars that were mated to this engine as well. Uh, I believe the Saab unit was an ASIN gearbox versus the other ones which used a GM unit. Uh, the GM unit had some failures early on, but they got it fixed later. Um, but it sounds like the Saab powertrains just generally held together much better over time. Interior-wise, on the later Saabs too, uh, it was a lot of GM parts bin pieces, and it has its ups and downs there. On the one hand, you know, that means I could go to AutoZone and pick up pieces that will fit in there pretty easy, which is always a good thing. On the downside, it never really made it a very luxurious car at that point. Uh, it does use the same radio unit as, well, the Chevy Cruze, the Chevy Avalanche. Uh, pretty much every car in the GM lineup had the same head unit at this point. And one good thing about that is that you can basically take the Saab, which is more or less a modern car in terms of its looks, performance, all that, and start sticking in modern technology. So it's got that double din head unit. You can take that out. You can stick in a new Kenwood or Alpine head unit uh, that runs Android Auto or Apple CarPlay. And really, you end up with more or less a current car. And that is a really appealing thing to me. Just the same, having that cross-wheel drive system, uh, it's very capable in winter weather. And then with the winter weather we get here in Michigan, you never really know what you're gonna get. So that might be a good add-on as well. And that, uh, again, that two liter turbo engine, it's got a lot of power when you need it, uh, but it's still fuel efficient otherwise. And I think that's another strong case for the Saab as well. What gets tough for me is I don't know what insurance rates are on these cars anymore. Uh, because Saabs are a car company that really doesn't exist, uh, there aren't a lot of parts floating around in the ether for it. And because of that, uh, if I was ever to get in a collision or any kind of other damage, uh, it might be harder to source parts and that will make insurance costs go up significantly. And that may be a major drawback. But most of these models that I've been looking at have been extremely well kept. They were adult driven. People who were buying Saabs at that point in time were Saab fanatics and you know they were gonna take care of these cars until they sold them. And with a car with less than 100,000 miles on the clock, you're looking at about ten dollars to $15,000 in price. Most of the ones I've been seeing lately have between eight and 12. Uh, and that's not a bad deal. Now, the reality is if I really get hooked on this Saab thing, I'm probably more than likely gonna have to go with a more standard 9.3 Sport Combi. There's really no major difference other than the body cladding and the Under Armour protection. Um, so, uh, I'll keep shopping. We'll keep seeing where things are at. These cars exist around here in Michigan and Wisconsin and Indiana and Illinois. Um, it's just a matter of when the one you want pops up at the right time and in the right place. Now the flip side to that is a car that's a little more popular and perhaps a little less capable, uh, and that is the Honda Accord Cross Tour. Now the Cross Tour, just like the Element, uh, came out at a time in which Honda was really thinking ahead of the curve, maybe even so far ahead of the curve that people had no interest in buying it. Uh, it kind of like the 9.3X was meant to be a more off-road capable wagonish sedan uh, that 
kind of was meant to pull away some crossover buyers from other people. But really, the Cross Tour kind of went toe-to-toe with the Subaru Outback, and the Outback really kind of took it behind the shed and showed them who's boss. Uh, that uh, Cross Tour, you know, I think the big advantage there was, of course, as always, the Honda reliability, the Honda dependability, the Honda quality that you would expect. Uh, many of the cars that I see for sale here, at least in Michigan, our EXL trim models, so they're going to have uh, leather heated seats, uh, a lot of other electric touches that are really good, some modern safety equipment might be available as well. Um, really, these cars come off as great commuter cars, especially in areas of inclement weather. Uh, the big drawback is that compared to a Saab and in terms of boot space, uh, the Accord starts to lose out because of the way its rear suspension is set up. Uh, the wheel arches really protrude into the back of the car uh, that make it... Uh, Plenty capable, at least in terms of vertical stacking space, but horizontal space isn't particularly great. And having to carry the large number of boxes, and usually larger boxes, uh, in my car, uh, that might be a little bit of a hindrance, uh, depending on what's going on at any given time. Now, the upside to the Accord, of course, like I said, is that, well, it's all off-the-shelf Honda pieces for the most part, at least in terms of mechanical bits. The downside is kind of like the Saab, exterior bits were only on one model for a short period of time. Many of the interior pieces were not shared with other Honda and Acura vehicles, and that could make things a little more expensive. Uh, but it being a Honda, it being a really reliable car, I think there are some advantages there. That V6 is a little more thirsty than what was in the Saab, but, uh, you know... It's all kind of liquid, I guess, at that point, because both cars are going to be a good bit worse than my Fiesta. And I guess one other side point is, of course, well, the Subaru Outback. Everybody's got Subaru Outbacks here in Michigan, as well as many other northeastern states and up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, these cars are basically designed to carry shit and get you through the snow. And uh, I think my only hesitation with the Outback is, well, because everybody has one, uh, that doesn't make me a unique individual because I'm that kind of person. And two is that, well... It's almost overkill for what I need most of the year because the Subaru is always in four-wheel drive, all-wheel drive power situations. Uh, you have a lot more wheel and tire wear. You've got a lot more uh, fuel economy losses. You've got a lot more, uh, what do you want to call it, uh, a lot more uh, powertrain bits and bobs that are going to need replacement because they're being used that much more. And that is really a big drawback for me. Um, it's not to say that uh, these aren't good choices. Because there are so many here in Michigan, uh, the prices stay relatively low, especially on the Outbacks. And the Outbacks that I like the best, which are relatively recent, um, are in that kind of cheaper category, that ten dollars to $15,000 range, um, that I think make a good argument. Uh, that being said, you know, kind of like the Honda, it's got... Not so much of an interior that can be modified to be uh, future-proofed with some newer technology. Um, and, you know, it wasn't until more recent Subarus that things got to be pretty future-forward. Uh, so I'll have to do some more shopping there. I've always been more of a standard legacy guy when it comes to the Subaru lineup. Uh, but the Outback makes some good cases for itself. And uh, I def it's definitely think it's one worth considering. But if you ask me between the three right now, today... It's the Saab that really takes the cake for me. Uh, the Ford Ranger is still on the list of things when it comes to pickup trucks to kind of think about. Uh, and then uh, as far as small crossovers go, well, 
it really kind of depends on where my money's at in the not too distant future. I think buying new makes a lot more sense than used uh, just because these cars have exploded in popularity as of late and all the technology growth has been in this segment and I want new technology and that's what's important to me. So yeah, but anyway, uh, we'll kind of keep you posted as things continue to shop. My girlfriend always makes fun of me that I'm always shopping for a car, which is 100% true, uh, but it's, uh, it's something worth thinking about, especially as my job continues to change and the demands uh, for what I need to do day-to-day, week-to-week uh, continue to be a little wild and crazy. Well, hey guys, that just about wraps up this episode of the Salvage Title Podcast for Friday, June 21st, 2019. Hey, it's the first day of summer, so I hope you have a fantastic beginning to your summer season. It's been super cold here in Michigan up until, well, seemingly today, Uh, so hopefully things were a little bit better by you. If you want to follow along with this podcast, you can do so by subscribing to us on uh, the Apple Podcasts app, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, so much more. Uh, You can also follow a direct link to this podcast at anchor.fm slash salvage title. And you can follow me, Brad Eiseldyke, at twitter.com slash YSSMAN. Uh, with all that considered, guys, you know, I need to get better about making these shows a little more regular. Uh, the new job does put some more, uh, strict demands on my time being able to do some extra things at the moment. And until I get caught up at work, well, things might suffer a bit. Also, we're going on vacation, uh, in a little more than a week. So I'm hoping to maybe get a short episode to you sometime next week before we leave. But, uh, once we go out into the outer wilds of New York state, well, there's no cell phone signal, so no show for you. Uh, but anyway, guys, I hope you have a fantastic start to your weekend and we'll see you very soon on the next episode of the Salvage Title Podcast. 